right now it's still true. Like find that subset of group of people that have a problem that nobody solved and solve it with your business or your services, or your ideas. Like that's that's the real way to to get ahead now, in my opinion. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world. If you learn to weave a network of people who trust you, who feel heard, understood, and valued in your presence, there will always be someone willing to hire you, buy from you, or work with you. So what are you waiting for? Let's go Beyond Networking. Okay, Brian Miller here. If you're new to this podcast, I'm a former professional magician turned author, speaker, coach, and consultant on human connection. And I'm really excited to bring this conversation with Norman to you. Now, this is the last of the interviews that I had pre pre-recorded. So I'd recorded them months earlier uh, because I was supposed to be uh, touring internationally, giving speaking engagements and, uh, and, and doing all my consulting work and running workshops, of course, in the middle of the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. That is not happening. And so I ended up with this, you know, just this batch of podcasts I had recorded months before the pandemic. So these episodes feel just a little weird that we're not addressing the current situation or talking about it because when we had this conversation, it wasn't happening. Uh, having said that, I think you're going to find a tremendous amount of value in this particular episode with Norman Ng. Norman, I met uh, just about 10 years ago when I was entering the college campus entertainment circuit as a comedy magician. He was one of the known quantities uh, magicians in the college campus entertainment world. He was just booked solid, touring the country. He was on the road constantly, and it was just really inspiring and incredibly impressive, the career he had built for himself. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, if you didn't know him behind the scenes like I did, seemingly out of nowhere, he walked away. He left this incredibly lucrative, incredible career behind and started saving old tractors on a farm in Maine, which sounds ridiculous, but he ended up building this tractor-saving business to global heights far beyond anything that his magic career uh, ever was or ever could have been. And in the process of doing that, Norman saved his family. You're going to hear all about that in this conversation. I'm not going to lead in too much to it because I just want you to hear Norman tell it and how it unfolds. But suffice it to say, we're going to talk a lot about work-life balance, about how to prioritize the things that really matter in life, um, how to build a business, any business. And I think even though we were not talking about um, anything to do with the pandemic, because again, we recorded this in January of 2020 before two months before any of this was uh, was really a topic here in the United States. Um, the way that he describes building a business and how to be a successful business owner, an entrepreneur, a freelancer, or even just how to become a linchpin of an organization, the go-to person in a company that you work for, um, nothing about the current situation has changed any of that. And you're going to find so much of his 
uh, his insights here really valuable. Plus, he tells wild, wild stories. So stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode for my three biggest takeaways from our conversation. And now, please enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Norman Ng. All right, Norman, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here with me today. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you again, Brian. It's been a little while. It has been a little while. We used to see each other all the time, uh, you know, at least a bunch of times a year, even almost passing in airports. Absolutely. Uh, We were both working in the same market for years. And you you had been in there for uh, in in the college entertainment market for a little while before I got in. I got Mm -hmm. in in 2009. When were you start? When did you start in that market? I started promoting myself to the college market when I was 21. So that would have been (laughs) 2005. That's when I started. That makes sense because my so you had been in it for four almost five years before I got in, which to the average listener may not sound like a lot, but in the college entertainment market, that's like being a veteran of the market. Oh, and absolutely. In oh, some yeah. ways, there's so many new young people that try get in and end up leaving so quickly every year that once you've been in for a couple of years, people come to you like, "Teach me, how do I do this?" Oh, absolutely. That happened a lot, uh, especially at that time. Yeah, I would say, yeah, about the five-year mark, as you said, you become the veteran, and maybe a year after, I was kind of that go-to expert that everybody looked you know, look to for, you know, how do I fill my schedule? How do I balance uh, family life with touring life? Because mm. I, I became a father when I was 24, so that was wow. only three years after I started the college market, so I had all of that on my plate as well. What what was that like starting a family while being on the road? And I ask that both as out of objective interest and also subjective interest as my wife and I are thinking about in the next couple of years sure. finally starting a family and wondering about the impact that that's oh, going to yeah. have on my professional life. What what, you know, what was that like? That's a great question that not a lot of people ask. And to be frank and honest, it was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. And and I was touring all the way up until just a few years ago. So it it was a decade-long battle of, you know, how do you handle yourself as, a, as an aggressive professional in a very, you know, difficult industry, be it entertainment, and balance the, the family social life. It was, it was really, really hard. A lot of challenges. You know, it's not just the challenge of time, but the challenge of attention. Because entertainment, especially magic, is unique in the sense that we don't just sell the show, we sell the show, we perform the show, we write the show, we critique the show, we edit the video for the show. It's literally like 12 jobs rolled up into one, plus you have to travel a lot. So it definitely created some rocky family environments that I'm happy to say that you know I made it through. I have four kids now, same wife, uh, happier than ever. <laughs> I yeah. love that you threw in same wife. Same, I mean, <laughs> it's true. And a lot of people in showbiz, you know, it's fun. It's like a cliche. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they get married, they enter show business, they divorce, and then they get remarried to someone else in show business. And who, who is who is part of that world and part of, who exactly. is more sympathetic to it. Um, boy, there, there's so many things that you just said that I like really, really would love to talk about. Before yeah. I dive into all the different places we could go from there, sure. let me back up for a second. Um, you 
currently are not a full-time touring comedy magician, although you've recently started doing a little bit more again. But but your full-time job now, it, let's, let me ask it this way. If you're at a cocktail party these days, you just met someone for the first time, and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer these days? I, uh, these days I say I run a tractor parts development company. So my company, I Save Tractors, we make, design, develop parts for antique small tractors and small engines that nobody makes parts for anymore. So that's kind of my quick 30-second pitch. Very different than show business where I spent my entire <laughs> life in. All right, so where did that come from in your life? I mean, I obviously you I I know you live on well you what you live on a farm in Maine, right? We do. Yep, we have an 8-acre small farm here where we raise chickens, goats, sheep, horses, uh uh, vegetables, all of that. So I actually don't know your 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 background. I only know you as magician and then moving forward. I never really knew you before then or, or, or spent enough time around you to be asking things like that. So I'm going to ask now, what what were you doing before magic? What, what was that? Were you in a farming family, a community? Where Where did that come from? Oh, no, that's where the story gets interesting. <laughs> I, uh, what you knew me is exactly what I was up until that point. I have never done anything before this other than show business. You know, with the exception of, like, you know, your high school job. I worked at a retail store. And that right out of high school, I moved to California and started pursuing full-time magic as a career. And that's all. I started when I was eight years old doing magic. And then I was competing at magic competitions all throughout my middle and high school years. And then I just went for it, became a magician. So I have no show business background, no farming background, no tractor background, no engineering background. I didn't get the background until I needed to get it, which is, uh, I know we could fill up like a four hour podcast. I'm I'm so fascinated by that. Now, did you buy a, a house or buy a farm or buy land? without planning on being a farm like when, how did you end up getting that if you weren't if you didn't come from being in farming or like I'm so con- I'm so sure. confused yeah, help me uh, oh it's so <laughs> it it's actually funny so it was it would be you would call it probably my fifth chance encounter mm-hmm. in my life and it was meeting my high school sweetheart Tanya who uh, is now my wife and the mother of all my children she was raised she loved horses she was like one of those girls who dreamed of having a horse she eventually got her horse and I was you know devoted to this relationship and that is what brought me into the rural lifestyle without my wife I wouldn't be doing farming or tractoring or any of that I'd be you know still pounding the road and you know doing my stage show most likely Hmm. so that's kind of that was the first thing that kind of veered me in this direction so when we moved back to Maine from California to start a family we didn't want to, since she liked horses, she didn't want to live in the city or the suburbs. So we went way out into the sticks, bought this land that was not a farm yet. And over the last decade, we've been slowly turning it all into a farm. And that's the whole cascade that introduced me to tractors and homesteading and engineering. And from that, that's kind of how, how I got here right now. Okay, so now every time you take me forward, I have to go back further. So yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps coming back to the to the present, and I'm like, nope, we're gonna we're gonna keep pulling back to the past. Yeah, um, take me back to then when you just said you were in L.A. So when did what age were you when you moved to L.A.? San Francisco. I went to San Francisco. Oh, first. you went to San so Francisco. I was in Nor I was in NorCal. Uh, did I you moved say California. Out- I must have just assumed L.A. 
I, yeah, I just, man. yeah, I just say California and you're not alone. Everybody just assumes uh, Southern <laughs> California. So I went to Northern California when I was uh, 18, two months after I turned 18. To I be a magician? To be a, to pursue magic as a full-time career. So, you know, growing wow. up in Maine, everyone tells you that in Maine, you can't, you can't be anything in Maine. You got to go, you got to go mm-hmm. somewhere else. So I figured I'd go to, uh, you know, as far as away as I can get to the West Coast. And I did make a stop in L.A. It wasn't really my thing, so I moved up to NorCal. I had a couple of uh, extended family members there, so that made it a little bit more enjoyable. And that's kind of where I rooted myself for five or six years. So how did it go in L.A. when you're, you're 18, you're trying to – I'm taking myself back to when I, I was like – you know, just like – so I was 16 when I founded my business legally. I did a few paid yep. shows from 14 to 16, and then from 16 on, I've been a professional magician. It was part-time yeah. as I put myself through – or supported myself through, through yep. college and then full-time ever since. Um, when you were 18, what sort of gigs were you doing? How, how did you end up doing – did you go to college? I did not go to college. So how did you end up doing co- – most college entertainers came right out of college into college entertainment because it makes the most sense since that's what you spent the last four years building an act around is the people sure, right sure. In, in your in your um, immediate vicinity. How did you end up in colleges? What were you doing? Did, did you want to do colleges or did you fall into that? So colleges was a means to adjust my lifestyle. So to answer your first question, when I first moved to California, uh, the gigs I was doing was any gig. I, I became like the, the leader of birthday parties in Northern California. In the Bay Area, I would, no exaggeration, regularly log 400 birthday parties per year. I was doing, I would do six on a Saturday, six on a Sunday, and during the week, I would do like three daycare centers, uh, in libraries in the afternoon, I was pounding out a ridiculous amount of shows, and it was wild because this was before like smartphones really took over. So I remember in my in my car, by the way, that was uh, duct taped together because I bought it for like a thousand dollars, held together by duct tape, and I had like a bunch of plastic sleeves with MapQuest directions between gigs. Oh my god! And that's I... how I would navigate the West Coast highways and traffic. It was wild. I'm having so much nostalgia right yeah. now for the beginning of my career. <laughs> exactly. So that's where I became like that's where I where I found like a real magic career. Like I was able to live 100 percent on magic in the greater San Francisco Bay Area, which was a, an accomplishment for me for only being That's in amazing. My 20s. It was it was pretty wild. And I was just a super hustler. I would never and I still never sleep. I'm just constantly hustling away at everything I do. And to get back to the colleges, so at that point, so just to kind of take you back there. So I'm in my twenties. My girlfriend from high school, Tanya, who later becomes my wife, moves out to California too. And she's working with horses. I'm doing magic. Life is great. And then we had an unexpected pregnancy with my first son. And that's kind of where everything shifted. So I'm like, wow, we are going to have a baby. And there's no way we can afford to do that here on the West Coast. And my wife, we had already been talking about possibly moving back to Maine because she hated California. It's not her, mm-hmm. not her scene. So I, in my mind, I was already trying to figure out, all right, I want to do magic for a living. My wife doesn't want to stay here, and now I have a baby on the way. Like, how can I make this work? So I started Googling magicians, like, what kind of gigs can you get 
where it doesn't matter where you live. So I was thinking theaters. I was thinking like corporate trade shows. I was thinking uh, large corporate uh, gigs. I did a couple of corporate trade shows. I talked my way through some like pretty big dollar corporate trade shows. <laughs> I was awful at it. I was so bad at it. I wanted to give the money back, but I couldn't afford to give the money back. Yeah, like yeah. it was bad. Not my scene. Yeah. Theaters. Nobody took this like twenty year old, nineteen twenty year old kid seriously about theaters and I was like a little Jeff McBride clone you know I had like <laughs> sparkles on my outfit posing like a samurai just pausing for the listeners because it's not a magic podcast explain real quick who Jeff McBride is Jeff for McBride us. was a very iconic magician for magicians in the 80s and 90s and his style was a was a mixture of like quirky artfulness with like semi interpreted kabuki theater Japanese style theater, and it, it was it worked for it's him. It's really a sight to behold if you've never <laughs> if you've never seen it. Let, it really do, everybody, is. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave a link in the description yeah. of this episode to something from Jeff Jeff McBride. Just do yourself a favor and go look at it. Yeah, it's it's, it's a product of its time. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So so the theaters didn't take me seriously, and then I found out uh, about this this college market that like wow, all these colleges pay lots of money to bring a performer to their college to entertain their students. And I was able to Google some artists who were doing really well doing this. And I would totally MySpace stalk them at the time and be like, What's Br- where does Brian Brushwood live? He's another you know, well-known college performer. I'm like, Texas. And he's performing in you know, Maine, Boston, Washington. Let me look a little further. Oh, he lives nicely. He has a family. This could work. So yeah. Him and others of his uh, contemporary were kind of laid out the groundwork to me. So I was like, okay, if I want to move to rural Maine to satisfy my family needs, the college market is the only way to make that possible if I want to still do magic. So I re, I re kind of aligned my mind to start developing material specific for that demographic, you know, 18 to 22 college students. Right. So now, 18 to 22 college students, when you started doing the college market, were, I came in, as we had already discussed, four or five years after you, and so I kind of caught the tail end of the same market that you were in. Sure. I came in right as it started to change and has led to now 10 years plus whatever later, a very, very different market. Yeah. What sort of stuff, is there a way that you can categorize the kind of comedy magic show that was appealing to students when you came into the market? Yeah, well, when I first came in, I I didn't even know what the college students <laughs> appealed to. My first several sure. years were kind of rocky. But when I did start to uh, get really popular, what I found is the college students, want, they wanted something really in-your-face, high-energy, and interactive. And something that was non-stereotypical. Because when I was doing it, everyone still rolled their eyes at magicians like oh where's your mm-hmm. rabbit in your hat you know pick a card i i the last time i saw a magician was my fourth birthday party you know it wasn't cool yeah. yet yeah and you know thankfully that opinion has changed over time but yeah my style was very like very energetic i would jump up as high as i could and smash someone's cell phone with a baseball bat <laughs> you know i was kind of 
a very aggressive talker, even though I'm not a very aggressive person, but I carried myself on stage a tiny bit more aggressive. I spiked my hair like a Japanese cartoon. I, I remember and- <laughs> the promo from when I first came into the circuit and you were one of the, like, you know, the guys I was looking at, like, oh, yeah. I want to get to that level. I remember looking at your promo being like, is that what I have to do? Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> so... Uh, and like it hit like I was very fortunate to I, I enjoyed uh, several years where I had a, an envious tour schedule. Yeah, you were doing how many I mean, how many sh- college shows? Were you, it, it seems impossible now to do as many shows as you were doing at sure. one point. Yeah, if I did less than 90 college dates, I would literally have to get another job. So. And and I got paid really well. That ninety college gigs is a lot of money for those yeah. who don't know. But I at that point, by the time I was good, I had more kids. <laughs> I was living in Maine, I was married, had a house, so you know the the financial burden was a lot higher. So I would regularly log between ninety and like one hundred and fifteen college dates. And then in the summer, I would hustle like crazy and perform at you know everything else, fairs, festivals, libraries, corporate gigs, you know all all that stuff. Nonstop. So nonstop. Dur- during that time when you were, you know, kind of working, kind of chasing your own tail, working to support the lifestyle to keep working and all that, you know, round and round and round. Did you enjoy the shows? Did you enjoy that time or did, did it start to to did that demanding schedule actually start to wear on you at one point? And, and, and the reason I'm asking is because I'm getting very wary lately of the hashtag hustle culture. Sure on the internet and I think it's making young people especially in college or young professionals um, think that the only way to success is to turn every hobby or interest they have into some version of monetized uh, to make some money off of everything every second of every day and for me when I was at the height of you know my version of what you're talking about when I was at the height of being a magician I just kind of started to hate magic. I just I just really got tired of it and I love magic now again the way I did when I f- was first building my career now that I'm not doing magic full time anymore and it's only 5 or 10% of my work again. So I I'm curious how did that impact your enjoyment and your ability to translate that enjoyment to the audience? Oh, I experienced the same exact thing during the height of all this uh you know, I had a lot of personal struggles as well, you know, trying to balance the family life and traveling life. I ended up getting really miserable, really jaded, not liked. I always loved magic. Performing on stage for that hour was the real me. Really enjoyed it, loved it. But everything surrounding that, between the getting the shows, driving to the shows, meet and greets after the shows, the hotels, I hated all of it. I actually fell into a pretty, you know, pretty deep amount of mental depression based on that and totally right yeah the hustle culture i'm still guilty of that my hobby of tractors is now <laughs> now a business as well and yeah. uh, so, you know with me i, I seem, can't seem to help myself i just everything i love i turn i go to the nth you know degree on it but it was it was definitely challenging so on on that note uh, i want to recall a specific personal memory of an interaction that you and i had um and I'd love to get your, if that's okay, I'd love to yeah, get sure. your kind of reaction to it. And if if it's uncomfortable to talk about, we can cut this. Um, okay. You know, right. Oh, boy. Um, what is this? <laughs> well, so uh, there was one time, and I, I want to say this was like 2014, 
14, but the college years have really blurred together for me at this yeah, point. So yeah. um, you and I were sitting in Starbucks okay. in the Connecticut Convention Center. Okay. At NACA Northeast, where it's held every year, which okay. is beautiful for me since I'm 18 minutes from it. Yeah. Uh, yep. It's fantastic. And we were at a break at one of the NACA conferences. NACA, mm-hmm. for the listeners, is the National Association for Campus Activities. It's kind of the lifeblood of college campus entertainers and sure. speakers. So we were just taking a break, having a little conversation, waiting for some other magicians to show up and have our own little magic convention during mm-hmm. the break, which is always fun. And uh, at one point, you you know, your phone buzzed and you just kind of said, you know, hey, I'm sorry, I need to take this for a second. I said, no problem. And you looked at it and I, I could see that there were photos coming up on the screen. You were looking at photos and I, I just kind of said, oh, you know, what, what's that? Just being nosy. And you said, oh, it's just my wife's sending me uh, photos of my kids in their Halloween costumes. They're trick-or-treating. Mm. And it, I didn't even realize it was Halloween I because I, I, I don't have kids. I was a college performer sure. at a conference. I'm working. And I said, oh, God, it's it's Halloween. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's Halloween. And I said, I didn't mean anything by it. I said, yeah. oh, God, like you're missing your kids trick-or-treating? And I'll never forget what you said. It's burned into my memory. Okay. You, you looked me in the eye and you said, I miss everything. It's true. Yeah. And I feel like it wasn't six or eight months later that you announced you were retiring from touring. Sure, sure. What's going on in your head right now as you think back on wow. that moment? I- it almost brings tears to my eyes because uh, I didn't remember this exchange, but you know, in detail. But it is exactly what I would have said at that time period. Uh, yeah, it was that kind of really illustrated the struggle I was going through, and it's it's crazy that you remember that. So that was the, and that still is kind of the big issue in my life is, uh, especially when I was touring, is you have this work life where I was the only uh, income, I was the only working person in our family. My wife's was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And there was this struggle of you have to, I had, let's see, 2014, I would have had, <laughs> let me think about it for a second. I would have had uh, three kids with my fourth on the way. That's so my memory it, of this yeah. conversation. Yeah. So in my mind is you've got to work, you've got to hustle, so you can pay for those, you know, four beautiful children and this whole lifestyle. But at the same time, there are things that money can't buy, like your presence there. And it's that constant pull that eventually pulled me completely out of show business uh, because I, I, I literally missed everything. So I missed my first son's birth. I missed my second son's birth. I was there for my third and fourth. For my third, if I'm remembering correctly, I had to leave like within days after. And that one was a struggle because my our third pregnancy with my daughter was riddled with complications. My wife was on bed rest for you know nearly half the pregnancy, and we had two kids at the time, so it was it was just a big mess on juggling who handled what, and you know there was no there was never an easy answer, and that kind of pulled apart my soul at that time because uh, you know in one hand you have your wife who's on bed rest in medical emergency. You have your two kids who now have to be shuffled between uh, extended family. And then you have me, who, if I stop working, there is no money for after she comes out of the hospital. There was no, there was, you know, we don't have unemployment. We don't, if for a performer, if you don't show up, you don't get paid. And, you know, that was uh, definitely the biggest 
like I had to live with all of that. I got a lot of uh, grief from a lot of people. Uh, my wife was great through the whole process. She understood exactly what I was going through. But I got grief from friends, from extended family. It was a very difficult time. And that's kind of what pushed me into creating a business and an economic system that could keep me here and still make enough money to support everybody. So one just follow up on that was was your wife not working by choice or because she had you because you were never home? It's, it's, that's another great question that had a whole bunch of gray area. That's kind of in a gray area. She, yeah, the primary thing is she couldn't work. Like she couldn't work full time when her husband was not just working full time, but gone 24 hours a day yeah. for uh, sometimes months at a time. So she had to be there to do the child care. Our second son was born deaf. Uh, we got him cochlear implants. So daily she had to do uh, linguistic therapy, audio therapy, you know, all of that stuff. So it was – and there was meetings and meetings with audiologists, sign language interpreters, teachers, special schools, the whole, the whole gamut. She sounds like a rock star. Oh, she certainly is. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, if it were up to me, I would have, I would have fallen apart, and I wouldn't have been able to do it if I were in her shoes. Well, that's amazing. Well, I appreciate you opening up about yeah. that. But let's let's turn the corner on the on on the the bright and sunny thing that came yeah, out yeah. Uh-huh. of all of that, which is so you did you know the business that you were going to start when you left touring Magic, or did you just go, I can't do this anymore, I quit, and I'll figure it out. Oh, I definitely didn't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Couldn't have done a, that, right? <laughs> I am a, I am a, an advanced planner in every sense. So I pretty much, the moment I got successful with performing, you know, I did all the shows, I was on TV, got these awards, I could already see the writing on the wall that something's got to give. Like this, there's no way I can keep this up. Uh, if I keep it up, my kids will grow up to hate me. I'll get divorced or I will go broke. So I had been planning three years in advance before I stopped performing. And it went through several iterations. I started a talent agency that eventually I couldn't uh, keep up with. Talent Being a talent agent is the least profitable <laughs> industry. I don't know how talent agents <laughs> did, do it. Did that give so. you so much more empathy for all of the agents out oh, there? Oh, so does. <laughs> like to do all that work for 20%, of gross uh, is is impossible. Like, I, is impossible. I think I have to remind myself that every time one of my agents tosses me a gig that's for less money than I would have liked, yeah. and I'm like, oh, God, it's really only for that. And then I always have to stop and go, yeah. oh, they're only getting 15 to 20% of that. Yeah. And like, I, I'm complaining about, I, I, you know, this amount of money that's thousands so of true. dollars. Yeah. And they're looking at 100, you know, they're, they're looking yeah. at a very small And that's amount. their top line because they yeah. still have to pay for agents, labor, marketing, this, that. Like, I can't, yeah. it's awful. So that tanked. Yeah. And then I was researching a little bit more, and since we moved to rural Maine, we needed – this is where my whole life shifted. We needed – oh, here, my office phone is ringing. Uh, I forgot to turn this Do you off. need to take a, take a no, break? I, no, definitely not. Let me just figure out a way to silence this real quick. That, literally, that could not have been more perfect in this conversation about <laughs> being on 24-7 and how hard right? we work. Exactly. <laughs> Someone give needs me, me right now. <laughs> give me one. I'm just going to go over there and unplug our phone system. So okay. we, have a, we have a customer service department, so these people uh, are just being transferred to me. Let, me. let me get rid of them. I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> 
All right, I'm sorry about that. That is very funny, though. That is very. It, funny. it is. Right? I just I can't. That, escape. that happened to one of my guests, um, uh, a world-renowned oncologist. I had yeah. on the first season of the podcast. He was doing it from home on a snow day. He originally had planned on doing it from his office at the hospital, and yeah. we, I was literally asking him about the work-life balance because he travels to give speeches all over the world constantly, and his his husband basically takes care of the family, and gotcha. he uh, and and literally as he's describing the difficulties of work-life balance. One of his kids came bursting into the oh, room, uh, yelling and uh, interrupting, and he was trying to get them out. No, I'm yeah, in the middle right? of it. I was yeah. just like, you couldn't have planned that. Oh, it's true. That's why my office is completely locked and enclosed from everybody. You need special keypads to get in my office codes. So I got to keep everybody out too. Uh, what What were we just talking about now? Uh, so you were you were describing how you you tried being a talent agent that didn't work. Oh, you were right. planning ahead oh, yes, for yes. leaving Magic. So I was planning ahead. I was trying to figure out what can I do. And I, I was always f- fascinated with the idea of selling stuff through the internet. But I didn't know what to sell. And I was reading books, studying. And then like we, we lived in Maine. We brought in my wife's horse. We wanted more horses. We needed, and horses, I don't know if you know, they, they each release about 50 pounds of manure every single day. I so, did not know that. <laughs> That's so much. It's a lot of manure for you to just handle with a pitchfork. So we needed a tractor. So if you go and try to buy a modern-day tractor, they are more expensive than your car. You're looking at like $30,000. And I'm like, no way. I can't, I can't afford that. Like, I can't reasonably do that. So what I ended up doing is I, I bought a 40-year-old garden tractor. It was a Ford LGT-145, made in 1974. And these garden tractors back in the day, they weren't like riding lawnmowers. These were like beasts of a machine. They were like the industry, they took farm tractors and miniaturized them. But they kept all the big beefy transmission components, driveline. All of those are like farm tractor style. They just put smaller wheels on them, made it shorter, and then poof, there you go, little garden tractor. So these are like really tough machines. So I bought this I restored it and I built a front end loader for it uh, so we could handle manure. <laughs> and the whole project cost about $1,500 versus $30,000. I still use it to this day. It, can, it easily handles all of the manure management for currently four horses, two goats, like 50 chickens. And, and when I did that, I realized looking online at like forums that, wow, there's a lot of people who do this exact same thing. That they need something bigger than a riding lawnmower, but they can't afford a larger utility tractor. So they buy these old ones, fix them up, and use them on the rural properties. Mm. I was like, wow, that's, a, that's so cool. There's so many people who do this. And then this became kind of a hobby. And I kept seeing these, these signals pop up over and over again. And that was people complaining that they couldn't get parts. Or they're now so expensive and you can't find it because these engines are 40 years old. And it just it got my head turning. I'm like, hmm, I want to get off the road and sell something. What could, and I, it all clicked. I'm like, here is a niche. I did my research on what companies supported these old tractors, and the answer was zero. There was no legitimate company doing anything like this. The huh. only people were there were some eBay sellers who would import like random quality stuff from China. And they would try to resell it to these people. And that was all you could get. And that was a mixed bag of quality and accuracy because (laughs) these were just guys doing a side hustle. They really didn't know much. 
So I'm like, hmm, this I'm on to something. So it took me a year, but I studied everything I could on small engine mechanics, diesel mechanics, electrical, mechanical engineering, computer-aided design, materials design, everything. I crammed it all in a year's worth of time, and I became a certified master mechanic in terms of agricultural equipment and power equipment. And then I started catting some simple stuff out, like really simple products. And I found a partner in Taiwan who was willing to help me make these products a reality. All right, hey, hang on. Before I could feel that <laughs> you were about so to go much. to the next part of the story. <laughs> you found a partner in Taiwan. That is, a, That sounds like a simple sentence, but I feel like... How, very com- very What does that mean? You found a partner. How did you find them did you were you in the same circles online where where did that come from how do you find a partner in taiwan for this niche business you're building that no one else does that there's not a precedent for it's it's so complicated to answer that and i've not answered that fully yet so i don't even know how to answer it (laughs) i can kind of lead you so i started by asking uh companies in the u.s to help me Mm -hmm. make these uh, pistons and carburetors. Like I had the specifications, I catted it out, I had it all ready. And I was told to essentially, you know, get lost over and over and over again by everybody. They're like, Oh, well, if you want that, it's going to cost you $50,000 in a mold. And you're going to have to buy like a hundred thousand units. That's if they even answered the phone and want to talk to me. I'm like, here I am. I have a great idea. Mm-hmm. I've identified a market. I had data to back it up, but you know, pretty much everyone, yeah, just didn't, didn't give me the light of day. So I eventually started reaching out to engineering companies overseas. Uh, I didn't really want to work with any companies in mainland China, mainly because I knew I was going into a field where, you know, the whole made in China rhetoric is not positively viewed at. Sure. So I jumped the border and I went to Taiwan and I was just reaching out to people who made similar things. So I don't want to give out too much information, sure, but sure, our, sure. our contracting partners, they this was not their first rodeo, but they needed my my beat and pulse on the the market for them to do their thing and I needed them to help me make stuff. So, you know, long story short, we built a relationship and you know, six years later here we are. Let's Wow. Yeah. So six years later. So yeah. So I, I actually had that timeline right earlier in my in my memory. Oh yeah, two thousand fourteen yeah. to now. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. So l- let me pivot on this point. I- I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more. I, I definitely want to talk about more sure. about how how it got built and everything. But as long as we're on the topic of this, where you said I don't even really know how it happened. The core theme of this show has always been about day to day interactions, chance encounters, really leveraging human connection as a way to build a sustainable career. Do you have a specific story um, before we get back to really how uh, I Save Tractors became this amazing thing that it is now and the YouTube channel and all this other stuff that sure. you do that I want to talk about? Uh, do you have a specific story of a chance encounter that was really memorable or that was really impactful either on you or on them or or both, per- personally or professionally? Sure. Uh, I mean, I guess the... The fr- oh, it's so many. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> I, if you don't mind, I'd love to touch briefly on sure. s- uh, on a bunch of them. So yeah, please. One of the first, I'd say, one of the well, I guess we'll go chronologically. So the first major chance encounter was meeting the first magician 
I had ever seen. And his name is Mark Ferris, and he uh, went by the stage name, he still does, of Almadar. And he had this magic shop right right on my – I was like an ant going home, and his magic shop was right on the path between school and home. So I would always – I'd walk by, and all of a sudden a magic shop opens up. So I go into all my friends, and this guy, Almadar, the first trick he ever showed me, uh, is is called sponge balls. You know what this is, but for the listeners, he took a little. He had two little red squishy balls. He put one in my hand, one in his hand. He made his disappear, and it appeared inside my hand. Totally blew my mind. I could. I had no explanation. And at this time, I'm I'm elementary school. It's I'm about eight years old. Like that's where all of this happens, and it like it just created this feeling of cannot compute. I, I have no idea what just happened. It makes no sense. So every day after that point, I would stop into this magic shop with or without my friends. I never bought anything, and I would just stand in the back of the room just watching this magician amaze all the other kids coming out of school, middle schoolers, elementary schoolers, high schoolers, and I would just stand back and just watch all of this unfold. And it was just absolutely mind-blowing. I was a quiet kid at the time. I remember some instances where he would put a little bit of lighter flu in his hand and literally light his hand on fire. And it appeared like he was tossing the flame back and forth. Like this was not uh, a magician, like at a birthday party. This was like a legitimate wizard. He was kind of, he was like a tough, burly Harley Davidson type guy with a beard. He looked like, you know, a badass version of Gandalf, like totally just captured my imagination. And one day, the very first thing he gave to me, was he gave me this little magic wand he used to make. And it was just a wooden dowel, spray-painted black with, like, medical tape on the ends. And this is what he he gave. He gives me that, and he gives me the book Amateur Magicians for Handbook, uh, for Amateur Magicians Handbook by Henry Hay. And he just gave them to me, saying, you seem like you've been really into all this. Like, you know, check it out. See what you think. And I read that book, like, a dozen times. And that's how I started learning sleight of hand and magic, and that really changed my life. Uh, moving chronologically forward, and I have to give a little backstory for this one. Uh, everyone I knew thought I was crazy for because pretty much from the moment I started doing magic, I wanted to do this for a living. Like this is it. This is my dream. And I'm sure you can attest. Everybody thinks you're nuts for doing this. And then I they can't. It like does not compute, right? Yeah, like you said, exactly. Just like no, but actually, what do you? Yeah, want to do? what's a real job? <laughs> like something you can make money with. And so I grow up from elementary to middle school to high school, not a single person taking my passion, or I should say my obsession, seriously. And then uh, I had a really great relationship that I built in high school with a faculty person, not even a teacher, but I would say this person helped you know, create the person I am now. She was, uh, she was not even the librarian. She was the library assistant. Her name was uh, Miss Geeson, we'll call her. I mean, that is her name. I won't give away her first name, just, <laughs> just in case, but Miss Geeson. So this, I, would always, I was one of those kind of nerdy kids who, you know, I was really friendly with everybody, but I wasn't like a super popular type. So for lunch, before and after school, I would go to the library and just hang out. And this woman, Miss Geeson, she would always give me these uh, cryptoquip puzzles. Do you remember those cryptoquips? It's like a no, coded. No, I, I don't. That does not jog my memory. Actually, it's like a, it's like a word game. So there's like a sentence, and they give you one letter, 
or like where it places in this blank sentence, and you have to figure out what the sentence is. Huh. So that's how this whole relationship started between Miss Geeson and I. She would give me these puzzles, and she would teach me how to solve them. And then I got really good at solving them. And then it, it, she became my like person I'd practice magic tricks for. Mm. And from day one to when I eventually went on Penn & Teller Foolish TV show, she was always very supportive. Like, out of everyone telling me I couldn't do it, she was the only one who could do it, who told me I could do it. And this was like wow. a great idea. So that gave me the confidence to, you know, move out of high school and, and go to California and pursue this. Another chance counter would be, of course, meeting my wife, Tanya. We were high school sweethearts, which is, you know, not very common anymore for this no. phenomenon to happen. We started dating when we were 17 and we eventually, she moved out to California with me, raised all my children and have been with me ever since. So, you know, there's so many ways where that was life-changing that we don't have time to talk over today, but I, you know, Almadar, Miss Geeson, and my wife, Tanya, definitely the three encounters in the first third of my life that hmm. changed the course of everything. You know what I love about those first two, obviously, you know, when it comes to spouses and, and, and your particular story with everything sure. we've already talked about, we could talk about that relationship yeah. know, forever, but that, almost a topic for a different sort of podcast. Um, but what I love about those first two in particular is how small the acts of kindness and generosity were on the part oh. of the people that had such a ripple, not just a profound effect on your life, but when you realize that because of the path they set you off on, how many ripples that you've had on tens of thousands of audiences and college students and people out there in the world you know, bringing people into into a, a magical place for an hour, giving them a break from their yeah. reality, taking their mind off their concerns, all the different things that entertainers get to do that, you know, if you go back to this this magician that you, you met that, you know, gave you a, a spray-painted wooden dowel and a book, yeah. which couldn't have cost him total more than 20 bucks, yeah. right, at yeah. the time, that had just this unbelievable world changing impact for you and then and then in in the ripples and i i just i like to to take those moments to just remember when we talk about day-to-day -day interactions and and making meaningful connections with people i feel like sometimes people get this idea that i'm trying to say you know you need to spend an hour with every random person that you meet it's like no it, it can be seconds to oh, make yeah. a ripple oh absolutely you're totally true, like especially with Almadar, the magician. The the moment he took and showed me that trick, and then the moment he just you know generously gave me this book to see, it was almost like a way to gauge my interest level. And he had no idea that it would turn into this. We're still very good friends today. But that's, you're right. Each that's awesome. Yeah, the interaction was was small and at the time seemingly insignificant. Right. Even with uh, Miss Geeson, the library assistant, just. You know, having me introducing me to that cryptoquip puzzle, and that's kind of what kept me in the library and kept me kind of out of trouble and focused on my mm. goals. Like that was still like at the time, she probably thought it was very benign, and I thought it was benign. She's just like, "Oh, here's a kid. Let's give him something to do, and here's a puzzle." And and you're totally right. Uh, and then my wife as well. Like we did. It's not like we were some big love story. It just something clicked. And uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And that, that just makes me think of a mutual friend of ours, um, uh, Michael Kent, who was a guest on the first season of the, okay. of the podcast as well. Yeah. Um, had this fantastic episode called, I think it was called Honoring the Shame, which was beautiful about oh. the shame and self-worth issues that entertainers go through. It was oh, a great sure, episode. Sure. Uh, but what he said at one point when he was telling me his story was he said, yeah, you know, you you just don't know you can't know the impact you're having on someone because if you don't know that person, you don't know how they react to things. Oh, sure. And I feel like so often, like you're still in touch with is Almadar. Am I getting yeah. that right? Uh, Almadar. Uh, Almadar. This is, yeah. Uh, you're still in touch. But if you hadn't been, if it had just been a window, a 10-minute one-time thing, he could have still had that impact on you and never have known oh, absolutely. the impact he had had on you. And I feel like that is much more common uh, that, sure. that we have that to 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 that point before we come back around to the tractor business. If you've got, do you have a little bit more time? We got late getting started. I've got tons of time. Fantastic. Right, <laughs> I unplug my phone, so <laughs> they're just they just have to wait. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, on that note, I, I've been really fascinated for the last year or so with this idea of luck and the role that luck plays in success. Mm. Um, I, I want to ask you, without defining it for you, do you believe in luck? I uh, The quote I think about the most, and I don't remember where I heard it, but I've been writing this. I've been like, even in high school, I made like little art things with it. And it was, uh, luck is simply just a combination of opportunity plus preparedness. And that's all luck is. It's not some magical, you know, a million dollars falls on your lap. It's a it's a it's a result of always being prepared and always seeking opportunities and that inevitable crossing point of the two is what we call luck. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. It does. I, so, yeah. so my follow-up to that is do you feel like you've been lucky? Uh, I feel like I have created a lot. I do feel like I've been lucky in the sense that I don't feel like I've been lucky and I had nothing to do with it. I feel like I've been lucky because I had something to do with it. Hmm. So that's a, that's a great way to think about it. Like, yeah. And even now I, I, I don't stop at this tractor business. I've, I have a lot of things that I'm working on behind the scenes, a lot of different business endeavors, and I'm building uh, coalitions with other main entrepreneurs to help flesh out more opportunities for the future. So that's I'm great. just, I'm just trying to stack those odds in my favor against for when the next time, you know, uh, opportunity crosses preparedness. There you go. So you, you, your kind of conception of luck is if, if I do everything in my power to be prepared, maybe nothing will ha- – I may never get that lucky moment, but, but if the right moment shows up, I will have been ready for it. Is that how you're, you're seeing it? Kind of. I, I guess my perspective is I'm not waiting for that lucky moment. I'm seeking the lucky moment. I'm like, mm. you know, if you hid something behind a million doors – I'm not just going to randomly open million, uh, you know, a few doors here and there to find this ball that you've hidden. I'm going to open every one of those million doors, <laughs> and I'm going to do it systematically, and I'm going to eventually get that ball. So it's just a matter of when they will cross. That's great. I love that. So let's go back then to the the tractor business. So you've got you you, you get it going. You have this random connection to somebody that's going to invest. Uh, right, or a partner um, yep. over overseas, uh, and somehow that comes about, and so you're like, okay, so I can actually do the thing now. So, sure. how does the thing get going? How do you go from you with an idea and someone else willing to partner on it or invest in it 
to you have employees now, right? Like you have a warehouse, like you have a proper business. Not like when we're like self-employed, like you're a magician. You're like, I run a business. It's like, no, you're yeah, self-employed. Yeah. Sure, like, sure. You have a business now. How did yeah, you get there? Uh, good question. <laughs> so yeah, we're in action. It's, it's tough because uh, there are a lot of details about this business that I've grown that is that is unconventional as well and still difficult to talk about because I, I haven't talked about it yet. But yeah, it's a real business. We have real uh, staff and real warehouse, real goods, all of that. How did it... So your original, I'm sorry, your question was how did how did it go yeah. from idea to this? Yeah, how do you go uh, from this idea and someone's willing to invest to like you have a proper yeah. business and like this kind of, it's amazing you know, what you've built. Yeah, it's, you know, it all comes down if if you identify a need, business as, as simple as fulfilling that need. Like there was no, there's no other magic, for lack of better terms, involved. Like I found a subset of people who needed parts for these old engines. And now I had an opportunity to make those parts available. So I started making some of the more demanded ones available, such as uh, carburetors, for instance, and people would buy them. I started selling on eBay just as like kind of a... It's, it's funny how this business has progressed. It started in my basement. My once magic office studio slowly got overtaken by engine parts. And then it went from there to uh, another part of my house, slowly took over. And then I bought an outbuilding to put in my house, filled that up. And then it started pouring into my driveway under tarps. And now we're in a full-blown warehouse situation. And it was all about just, at, in the beginning, it was just, like, I knew there were hundreds of thousands of people around the world searching for this stuff. And their only option was to pay absurd amounts of money for the part that was made literally 50 years prior that just sat in a warehouse. It's called new old stock. That was their only option. Huh. So I started putting it on eBay. People would find me. It gave me enough sales and capital to continue to push the f idea with my partners. Like, hey, we're on to something. I'm on to something. Stick with me. Don't, <laughs> don't cut me off yet. And then I started a YouTube channel. And that's really where fire started spreading everywhere. And because at the, like this whole industry of tractors... It's all dominated by older people with no knowledge or use of modern day marketing tools such as social media, video. Like they're all just stuck in time back to when mm -hmm. these machines were made. So I quickly jumped on YouTube because there's no channel devoted to any of this stuff. So I started putting out content where I would demonstrate to my potential customers why you should buy one of these old tractors from the back of someone's, you know, house that's buried in weeds, why you should buy these tractors and fix them versus going to the store, taking out another consumer loan to buy a tractor that's way too big than you need. So I created this YouTube channel to, to you know, I call it propaganda in my mind. I'm trying to sell <laughs> this idea. I'm trying to convince everybody to do what I'm doing. And it caught on. Like, there's a huge subset of Americans, especially, that love... They don't want to buy new. They want to fix the old stuff. They don't want to throw it in a scrapyard. They want to like do something with their hands, but maybe a car is too expensive. Maybe a motorcycle is too dangerous. You know, maybe a ATV is too impractical. And then they find me, the guy who's taking all of their mechanical wants and needs of you know fixing something and making it practical and you know fantastic. 
because I didn't just fix these tractors. I built backhoes for them. I built tank tracks for them. I did all this wild stuff. So these people are like, wow, I can do this. My wife won't kill me because I can use this tractor to like clear snow and mow the lawn. I'm not going to kill myself driving, you know, f- you know, 100 miles per hour down the road over a railroad track. Like I was able to capture all that attention and we still have we're still number one in all of that kind of social yeah, I mean, media influence. Uh, you know, I was I was looking at, you know, last night I've seen it before. I, I probably saw it a couple years ago when you really started pushing the YouTube channel and then I looked yeah. at it yesterday, you know, thinking about talking to you today and I was like, "Oh my god, like you have 24,000 subscribers and what I imagine by now is millions and millions of views, right?" Yeah, yeah, well, like I think overall, we're over, I mean, yeah, a couple million I believe. Yeah. yeah, I mean this. This is incredible. You you call it propaganda. I, I kind of call this tactical empathy. Like yeah, you know, sure, you, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you 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 took something that like it's not. People get this idea that like influence and persuasion and sales or marketing like that these are kind of sle like they like the sleaziness that people associate with that has been left sure. over from the advertising era, right? Sure, and like sure. today marketing is much more about about empathy and connecting with people and and so you've got this youtube channel and you're going look this what i'm doing and what i'm selling will actually solve the problems that you have this exactly. is and it works for you and you believe it'll work for them and and because you genuinely believe it'll work from them people can sense that authenticity i feel like coming through these these videos you know and that's going to make people so much more willing to work with you. I love that you I recognized that the people you were trying to reach are not on social media. And so instead of trying to convince people to come to where you are, you went to where they are. That's right. Yeah. And that probably sounds like you probably never even thought about it. You just did it because it made sense. Sure, sure. That is a skill that so many people don't have that are in sales and in marketing that I feel like everybody today, especially young professionals, as the world's changing on a daily basis, yeah. really need to learn that skill of meet people where they're at, go to where they are, and talk to them the way they want to be talked to, not the way that makes you comfortable. Oh, absolutely, that's absolutely true. And you're right. Like YouTube is where that was my my window in because every, even though all of my customers, it's changed a little bit now, but back then. They they might have not been on Instagram or Facebook, but everybody, when you have a mechanical problem, you go to YouTube. How to fix my tractor. Those were the <laughs> the keywords that constantly pushed me in front of my relevant customers. And and as you said uh, about the sales culture, if you watch my YouTube channel, my YouTube channel has the highest return on ad spend, and I don't spend anything on making these videos. Uh, I just make mm-hmm. them, but. Like we pay for advertisement through Google, Bing, you know, we do all the traditional advertising as well. But YouTube brings the greatest return. And you'll see when you watch my videos, they are not commercials for my company. So a lot of the, my popular videos, I forget to even pitch my company. I yep. just I just make videos about all these awesome equipment and the kind of it kind of speaks for itself. And it's it's those videos aren't really on selling you a particular part. They're on selling you to the culture, the culture of restoring and fixing these old small tractors. And that's really where it excels. That's I hope everybody really took what you just said to heart, because that is the core of being influential in the modern world, which is not trying to sell people 
not trying to pitch your stuff all the time. And when I say sell, I mean, everybody's in sales now. You're, sure. you're selling yourself in a job interview. You're selling ideas. Yeah. You're selling products, whatever, right? Yeah. Showing up for people and just delivering generosity and kindness and respect and not asking for anything in return is what builds trust and is what leads to, like you said, people in a culture that believe in the same things you believe and therefore are more than happy to do business with you. They'd be thrilled to give you money to buy from you because buying from you isn't just getting the thing they want. It's supporting the person who got them into the right place too. Oh, absolutely. I get calls and emails all the time. People saying, oh, your video on how to do this, you know, meant so much to me. I will buy, you know, can I buy a hat? I don't need anything right now. Can I buy something? (laughs) And and you're totally right. It's great. And I'm famous uh, in this industry for I help every single person. So I, I even there are several videos where I say, like, if you have a problem that I did not answer, you can call me. Here's my direct office line. Here's my email. And I will help you even if you don't buy parts or never buy parts. I talk to probably five, six people a day where I have zero to help them except my knowledge of this. So I, I refer them, openly refer them to other vendors and say, yeah, this guy's got it. Go buy it. And there's no, like, I'm just, that's why I named my company I Save Tractors and not I Fix Tractors because ultimately our brand is all about just fi- saving these machines for the customer. And the customer has a variety of reasons more than just practically on why they want to restore these machines. A lot of them have nostalgia attached to it. You know, it's their grandfather's tractor or they learn to drive on this tractor. Hmm. You know, and that's really what, what I'm trying to do with this whole tractor business. That's fantastic. Um, I want to make sure we get, uh, I, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to make sure we get a plug in for anybody who is, uh, you know, for any of you, your your folks uh, who happen oh, to be great. listening to this. Uh, so obviously they probably, anybody who already knows you probably already knows this, but it's, uh, is it just isavetractors.com all spelled yep. out? Yep, you got it. Exactly. Okay. And that'll be a link in the show notes uh, on the uh on the podcast as well. I uh, also have a link in the show notes to the YouTube channel, which is awesome. And you do have fun Great. with your drones, which is always fun to watch. I sure do. Oh, that's <laughs> I've been. I try to fly that drone uh, every chance I can. It's a blast. The last question you just brought up: the core concern of young people, young professionals today, which is the automation and the lack of jobs and, you know, uh, kind of the the technology taking over every aspect of our lives. How in the world am I supposed to build a sustainable career within that context? So my last question is, if you're speaking to a young professional um, who's going through those concerns right now, what piece of advice do you have for them in 2020 moving forward? Sure. Uh, My... If you asked me this two months ago or three months ago, my answer would most likely be different. Uh, the, in my opinion, entrepreneurship and the ability to solve people's problems in exchange for money is, is probably the best and most high chance of success moving forward. Because, and this is assuming that, even, you know, even if Andrew Yang becomes elected and his freedom to all that stuff becomes real, you're right. Like services and business are all consolidating to software. You know, our business already replaces bookkeepers with software. And, you know, it, the list goes on and on. And the reason I'm able to do well in this industry is because I've found a market need 
and I've solved it. So I would encourage a young professional moving forward, have an entrepreneurial mindset of solving a group. You know, there's a phrase called the riches are in the niches. Mm. Right now, it's still true. Like find that subset, a group of people that have a problem that nobody solved and solve it with your business or your services, or your ideas. Like that's, that's the real way to, to get ahead now, in my opinion. I think that's a great answer. And I, I would encourage folks listening who maybe aren't thinking about entrepreneurship or being self-employed that I don't think that you have to become an entrepreneur or go into business for yourself to apply that mindset. Sure. Um, I think that mindset of find a problem, find a niche, and be the person that solves it, be the person that finds those sure. people and oh, be the person that solves it is just as valuable in an organization where you're an employee uh, as it is to go out on on your own. Because I, I do occasionally get worried that, like, because I find myself doing it all the time. I'm a yeah. big proponent of being self-employed, right? Yeah. Like, and so I'm always like, self-employed, self-employed. You got, yeah. that's the yeah. best job security today is being yeah. self-employed. It flipped from when I started yeah. this, right? Oh, yeah. But not everybody's cut out for being self-employed sure. and not everybody should be uh, or wants to be. And so yeah. I think, I think, do, do, do you agree like that, that same mindset would be useful if you're in corporate America, if oh, you were just an intern starting out yeah. in a new company. Yeah, like the old school kind of thinking of, you know, get a degree, do that job, and that degree is over. Like there's no more, you know, get a degree in accountant, go be an accountant. Now it's you have to be accountant with some kind of X factor to bring to the table. And that's what keeps you around in an organization. That's what keeps people around in my organization too, is you can't, you can't just punch in and punch out anymore. Like the expectations are higher and it's a result of uh, several things, but you know, p we demand more from people nowadays. Uh, so all across the board, you gotta, you gotta be a problem solver for, no matter what you're doing. Is that the, the thing you most look for in your own employees, problem solving? Absolutely. Yeah. Problem solving and the ability to uh, adapt to circumstances is definitely the most valuable thing. I feel like this episode could be titled Adapting to Circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? I know. It's subconsciously, I guess I, I keep bringing it back to that. But yeah, it's uh, it's the whole reason why I'm I'm doing so well. And it's the reason I think that, that other, you know, and I say that based on experience too, because I have a lot of friends who are in show business or I have, I'm proud to have friends in a variety of industries, but you kind of, every industry, you kind of have to always be willing to uh, make changes and go with the flow. You can't just, you can't be set in your way one way. Like I'm a mechanic, that's what I do and that's it. Like you have to, you have to find why you like being a mechanic and focus on that. Cause I can still to this day switch careers again. Uh, what I do now with tractors is not that different than magic. Doing magic, it was creating magic tricks, problem solving. Doing tractors is fixing things that are broken, problem solving. So I focus on that aspect of my job. And that you can carry anywhere. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Norman, thank you so much for such an in-depth conversation. My goal of having shorter episodes this season has gone out the window. Yeah, right. One, <laughs> one episode. Uh, there is no chance this will end up being a short episode. Uh, but this is why I like doing long form. We get to have a real conversation and not just bullet points. So Absolutely. I yeah, appreciate all of your time, and I appreciate you unplugging your phones for me. Absolutely. <laughs> you should plug your phones back in. Yes, I'll be working extra today. <laughs>
Man, I love that guy. Here are my three biggest takeaways from my conversation with Norman. First, opportunities often arise in unexpected places. Norman never dreamed of living on a farm, let alone saving old tractors. It wasn't his passion or his calling. Contrary to the popular advice that you should pursue your passion, many successful people discover success in a place they never would have looked. The passion comes later, when you choose to love what you do. Second, remember what Sean Askinosi taught us in the third episode of this season. Our greatest joy is often on the other side of sorrow. Norman nearly lost his family to his career, and yet it was precisely from the depths of that sorrow that he built a new life, which brings him true joy. He serves a global audience of people who are genuinely grateful for the work he does and spends so much more time with his wife and kids. And finally, the most guaranteed way to build a sustainable career in an increasingly unpredictable world is to simply find a need and fill it. What does the world need and what skills do you have or what skills can you learn to meet that need? Then go do it. As always, you can find all of the related links in the show notes of this episode on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com, including how to connect with Norman across all the socials, his YouTube channel, his website, etc. If you enjoy this show, if you find value in this podcast, there are a whole bunch of free ways that you can support us because, of course, as I've always promised, there are no external ads and there are no sponsors. So how can you support us? Well, for starters, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. That's really, really useful. But more than that, you can share an episode with a VIP in your life. I'm sure you know somebody who, if you enjoyed this episode, would also enjoy and find value in it. Be the person for them that turns them onto this terrific resource. Share it with them. Use the hashtag Beyond Networking on social media so we can find you and thank you. And of course, you can always jump on the community email list at beyondnetworkingpodcast.com. That way you don't have to check your podcast app to see when there's a new episode. You'll simply get notified once a week with the new interview and also that week's episode of Thursday Thoughts, the every other Thursday short five to 10 minute uh, solo episode that I do. Having said that, my name is Brian Miller. This is Beyond Networking and we'll see you soon. Thank you.